Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here as always with John Mitchell. This week, since the college football season is now officially over, we're going to be turning our attention to the coaching carousel a little bit deeper. I know we've talked about it in recent weeks, but dust is finally beginning to settle a little bit on everything, and the game of musical chairs is starting to wind down to its conclusion. So we'll go a bit further into that. And then in our next segments, we'll be looking at the transfer portal. Um, We've talked about players going to the NFL early before, but now's our chance to talk about the musical chairs in terms of players as well as coaches. Before we get into all of this, John, how are you doing this week? Uh, Good. A little sad not to have college football anymore, especially as a a holiday weekend like we just experienced. It felt just kind of wrong. They're not being football or college football games. I guess we had NFL playoffs, but, you know, that doesn't hit the same. No, no, not at all. Um, Yeah, a bad college football game is always going to get me in a way that that no professional game really can. Um, There's just something about, you know, the combination of that, that community, that familial feeling that you don't get from a corporate entity like the NFL, even though as we talk about plenty, each one of these athletic departments really is a corporate entity unto itself. But You know, I think that's really reflected, especially in escalating coaching salaries and just how quickly the hook gets pulled on coaches these days. So let's dive into coaches. I think that's a perfect, you know, opportunity to really look at this a little bit further. So, um, you know, since we last talked, we've seen some more coaching uh, vacancies open up. We've seen, you know especially open up based around coaches going from one location to another. Um, We talked last week about Nick Rolovich being hired by Washington State during the, you know, that was announced during the national championship game. Um, We've also, since we last talked about coaches, seen Mike Leach leave Washington State, which is why Nick Rolovich was able to get the job that he did. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm just really interested in what you think in terms of now that we know where everybody is landing, um, who do you think is the coach that's going to have the most success at their location in their first year, John? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot of interesting fits, a lot of fascinating hires um, that have happened throughout the coaching carousel. Um, you know, I'm really intrigued and maybe not first year. I'm really intrigued what Lane Kiffin can do long-term in Oxford at Ole Miss. Um, but in terms of first-year success, a, a guy that I'm going to be really interested in because I think the Big 12 is kind of open with, you know, Jalen Hurts moving on from Oklahoma, Texas being, you know, simultaneously back, simultaneously not back, depending on who you talk to and depending on the, the season. Uh, I'm really interested in what Dave Aranda can get done at Baylor, taking over for Matt Rule, who left to be the – the head coach in the NFL for the Carolina Panthers, uh, taking Joe Brady from LSU with him, which is fascinating in and of itself. Um, but I'm really interested because, you know, one of the things that Baylor really had under rule was a 
They were really aggressive and a really strong defensive team, and that's obviously what they're trying to stick with, pulling Dave Aranda, who did a phenomenal job at LSU as a defensive coordinator, had done a phenomenal job at other stops before that. Uh, Wisconsin, I believe, in the past as well. So, I mean, he's very battle-tested, very well-seasoned defensive coach, now finally getting the opportunity. He's, you know, deserved for probably quite a while to be – to be a head coach and I think that's a really good cultural fit because I think he'll be able to do a lot of the same things Rule did I think Baylor will keep that same identity where they'll still have that you know that toughness and everything if he can get you know the offense rolling I think they're going to be a really good defensive team in the Big 12 I think they got a real a real shot to compete for a Big 12 championship next year I think that's a great great choice uh yeah really the fit um, of the program and the the philosophy of the coach coming in. It, it's hard to find a better one there. Um, I also think Jimmy Lake at Washington, just the continuity there, um, and the fact that you have Justin Herbert leaving at Oregon opens that up a bit. You don't have Mike Leach at Washington State anymore. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what Stanford and Cal do next season, both of those Bay Area teams in the North. But, I, you know, I think the door really opens up for Jimmy Lake just because he's been there and the program's familiar with him. You don't see a lot of change or a lot of philosophy, you know, switching out there. So I think he's really set up to succeed as well. No, yeah, I, I agree completely. I think... In a, in a similar vein to Aranda with just the fact that the division or conference that they're playing in are just really open, it looks like, next year. And I think both are just really good stylistic fits. Obviously, Lake having already coached at Washington, so it'll be a pretty easy transition for him. But with Aranda kind of bringing the same mindset that Rule brought to Waco, I think both of those guys, two defensive coaches in the day of age in college football, were offense and Rule. So it's kind of interesting to see two defensive coaches getting big jobs like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, Really good to see as well, I think, because um, for all we've seen offense, you know, sort of explode, I think at the same time, a lot of the programs that have had, you know, some of their best success have really leaned on the defensive side of the ball. That really was a testament to all the teams that played in the, in the college football playoff (laughs) other than, Oklahoma, obviously, but the other three teams and a lot of the other teams that were in contention for it um, really leaned heavily on their defenses. Um, That's a big reason why you saw so many Big Ten teams end up in the final AP Top 25 as well, I think, especially there in the top 11. I think it was like five of the top 11 were Big Ten teams, and a big part of that is the fact that they played really great defense throughout the conference this year. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think you're right in noting that. And that really also, as you said, speaks to Dave Aranda and his, you know, rise up the ranks. I know when he left Wisconsin for the LSU job, a lot of fans, you know, a lot of Badgers fans were really worried about what was going to happen to that defense in Madison. And obviously, Jim Leonard has done a great job of continuing the, the process there. But there was a real concern. And you see what Aranda was able to do at LSU as well. And, uh, it, you know, it, it was a justified concern, even if it proved to be fruitless in the end. So 
they got a great coach in Waco. I'm with you there. On the other side of the ball, though, I got to ask, who do you think is least set up to succeed in the first year, in their first couple of years, um, you know, who might be in the hot seat by year two already? Yeah, I don't know about hot seat, but I think the coach is going to have the toughest transition in at least year one and maybe year two is probably Mike Leach going to Starkville at Mississippi State. I'm really fascinated to see the long-term ability he has. Um, at Mississippi State, but the Bulldogs just stylistically are nowhere close to what Mike Leach wants. You know, this is a team that's been run first for years and years, you know, with running quarterbacks with, you know, Nick Fitzgerald in recent seasons and Tommy Stevens and people last season. So, I mean, they're a team that wants to run. You know, they don't really have an offensive line that's dedicated to pass blocking all the time. They don't have a quarterback that's in there right now who's really a fit Garrett Schrader would be the favorite would have been the favorite for any other coach you would think that was coming back at Mississippi State next season after showing some promise as a freshman but he was more of a running quarterback for the Bulldogs more in that Nick Fitzgerald vein so is he a fit in Leach's offense I think it's going to take some time for Leach to recruit the type of talent that he wants there and slow starts aren't new to Leach coach teams it took him a while to find his footing in Pullman it took him some time to find his footing, his footing in Lubbock beforehand. So I think that Mississippi State made this hire knowing that it wasn't going to be an overnight success story, that they were going to have to give him some time to recruit his players, to implement his system, and you know get the air raid going in Starkville, which is just a night and day change. It's going to be crazy to see Mississippi State throwing the ball 50 times a game. That's going to be just incredible to, to witness. So... You know, I, I'll be interested to see if there are players in the grad transfer market, if the Bulldogs go out there and try to find a quarterback, coach a quarterback from another school. Uh, we've obviously seen Leach as kind of a quarterback whisperer, though. Like, he's been able to develop guys who really no one saw coming. I mean, Gardner Minshew coming as a grad transfer from East Carolina uh, last season. No one really saw him coming and lighting up college football the way he did. So, you know, that was very impressive. And then even more so, Anthony Gordon as a walk-on at Washington State, winning the job over guys, uh, you know, who had more experience than him, who were really projected to be the starters. So, you know, Leach obviously has the ability to recruit or to um, develop quarterbacks. So it'll be interesting how quickly he can do that, how quickly he can get his offensive line going. But I think it's going to be a tough go early on for Leach in the SEC West. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's one that's going to take time. Um, I think as well, Eliad Drinkwitz at Missouri is uh, going to have a tough first few years there in the SEC East. Uh, really, you know, he kind of hit the lottery is, is how that went. You know, he took over for Scott Satterfield this year at Appalachian State led them to 13 and one obviously with that only loss the Halloween loss against Georgia Southern that effectively knocked them out of the the New Year's six but went 13 and one with a pretty stacked roster for the Sun Belt and parlayed that into a four million dollar deal at Missouri so I think he's one that I'm really kind of curious about I I, I think they might have made a reach for him. 
Um, so just in terms of his experience, I think that's a really quick leap to be making, and he might not be as set up for success as he'd like. Another one that I, I, I want to make sure I'm mentioning, uh, just because we know, um, you know, this is a school that's trying to find the Mac Brown magic after um, he returned to Chapel Hill last year, but Greg Schiano at Rutgers, I think, you know, you don't hire a coach the second time unless you're trying to capture the magic he brought the first time. And you want to see it quickly. You know, you want to see, like, the improvement that Mac Brown brought in one year. You want to see, you know, instant improvement. Um, we even saw it with uh, Bobby Petrino getting his second act at Louisville and having early success with it. But if it doesn't last, your hook is coming quickly. And so I think he's another one that you know, might be getting more than he bargained for in taking that job again, especially because now they're in the Big Ten rather than the Big East, and they're set up to fail much more than they were set up to succeed in his last stint there with the Scarlet Knights. Yeah, the good news for Shiano is they can't really do any worse <clears throat> Yeah, Scataway. Like, it's, it's, it's either you move up, you either move up a little or a lot. That's really all you can do. So I think that was... I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one that's, I think, kind of gotten forgotten about in this coaching carousel just because it's Rutgers and they've been such a lowly program since their move to the Big Ten. But, you know, Shiano had a ton of success at Rutgers. We're talking 12 or 13 years ago now. It'll be 13 years next uh, in September or October that Rutgers had ascended to number one or number two in the country uh, when all eyes were on the Big East matchup with them in South Florida, I'm moving a number one versus number two during a crazy 2007 season. So we know that Shiano can coach. He's proven that. If anyone's going to be able to resurrect Rutgers and get them to at least competitiveness, I don't think anyone's expecting them to rise back into the top five of the AP poll or anything like that. But if you could just win... If they came out and won five or six games next year, it would be a miraculous turnaround. If he can get them back to being competitive for bowl games, that's all it's going to take for him to be just a hero for that program. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's uh, you know, if he does turn things around, even gets them to the postseason, he's he's once again the, the knight in shining armor. But... At the same time, if it doesn't come, it doesn't come. You know, his time will come quickly, I think. Um, and, I, you know, because I'm talking about coaches getting their second run, I think also it's it's hilarious to see Brady Hoke's turnaround <laughs> in taking back over the San Diego State job. Uh, what is it, like 10 years now since he left San Diego State to take the Michigan job and Rocky Long stepped up into his position from the defensive coordinator spot? Now Hoke is, to, you know, he was a defensive position coach last year and steps up into his old role. So it'll be funny to see how that works out. Obviously, he had some success his first time around. I think it's you know, going to be easier for him to find that success in the Mountain West than it will be for Shiano in the Big Big Ten. Um, but at the same time, it's really interesting. I don't know if you've, like, looked at how many, you know, coaches ha or how many teams will have new coaches next year by conference, but 
the Mountain West, six out of the 12 teams are going to have new coaches next year. Um, in addition to Hoke, who's getting his, you know, second stint, you've also got, what is it? You've got Jeff Tedford done it at Fresno State, Kalen DeBoer's taking over there. You've got, uh, oh, God, who else is it? It's Nick it. Rolovich. Nick Rolovich is now gone at Hawaii. We don't know who's going to be replacing him yet. You've got Marcus Arroyo at UNLV taking over to, for Tony Sanchez. Uh, New Mexico moves on from Bob Davey and has Ryan Silverfield coming in. And then, uh, oh, there's one more, and I'm totally blanking on it right now. Uh, Colorado State, Steve Adazio coming in at Colorado uh-huh. State for Mike Bobo. So, yeah, six out of the 12 teams there are, are you know, bringing in new head coaches. And, uh, you know, three of those are in each division. So it, those programs that do have, you know, their, their coaching staff carrying over from last year could be in really great shape. You know, you've got Boise State, Wyoming, and Utah State in the mountain. And then, what is it? It's Nevada and, uh, let's see, it's San Diego State, Fresno State, and Hawaii all lost. And UNLV, so actually it's four and two. Um, So, really it comes down to who's going to win the West. And a lot of that could come down to um, how quickly a coaching staff picks up. And, and catches fire. So, I just want to throw my name in the hat for the Hawaii head coaching job. I, if, if the administration's listening right now, I am available, and I am much cheaper than most candidates would be. Yeah, I, I imagine you'd be, you know, a, a really easy get for them, John. And, yeah, it wouldn't uh, take much. Yeah, yeah, pay your relocation fees. Make sure you've got that sweet... Uh, radio spot every week and you're good to go yeah i am in hawaii call me i am ready to go (laughs) you know i hope they take you up on that john they know where to find you Um, it can't be that hard to find a coach who wants to take the hawaii job right like i mean of all places to relocate and live you know live on the island coach football there are worse gigs yeah, I mean, the, the worst you've got to worry about is cost of living. And, uh, you know, on a head coach's salary, I think you'll be doing just fine in that regard, uh, even in, even on the big island. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting. You know, it breaks down where 22 out of the 130 FBS positions are going to have new coaches next year. So, as I said, the Mountain West has six out of the 12 taking new bids. Um, the SEC has four coaches turning over as well. So um, that'll be really interesting. Three of them in the West, obviously, because the West has been such a juggernaut. And, um, you know, everybody's looking to unseat Saban and now also at Orgeron at LSU. So, um, and then Conference USA has three out of their 14 teams turned over. The Pac-12, the ACC, and the American all have two. And then the only conference that is not having any coaching staff turnover next year is the MAC, which could be for better or worse since we saw the MAC perform um, 
admirably mediocre and admirably parody filled last year. So maybe it's just a matter of, you know, um, hoping that newer coaches that were coming on will turn things around and that it was a, an aberration at schools that have had coaching staffs for a long time. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was a really interesting one that you don't see any new coach in the Mac, but every other FBS conf- FBS conference does. So it's interesting, particularly in a group of five conference, because you usually have someone who gets poached to a bigger school. But you know, in the Mac, there wasn't a whole lot of standouts this year, but there also weren't a whole lot of just awfulness either. So like every school has this at least pseudo optimism that you know, hey, next year we might can make a run. So I think that's what you're seeing in that conference is that everyone really feels decent about their prospects heading into 2020. Yeah, I think it's, a, as you said, a combination of that that eternal optimism that comes from a, a season where, you know, everybody had a chance and nobody really stood out. But when you have nobody stand out, nobody's coming up for those coaching bids. So as, as you said, they also, none of them got poached like we've seen in recent years, that churn, you know, cycling into the Big Ten with P.J. Fleck and, you know, um, other coaches of that ilk just kind of funneling down the reins. So, yeah, I, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with all of that next year. And uh, I hope Hawaii calls you. Uh, I hope they call really soon. Um, but we're going to take our first quick break, everybody. We're going to, you know, maybe John will already be on his way to Honolulu by the time we come back. But uh, at the very least, I'll be here to talk with you. So enjoy the break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're here after the break. Um, after we just finished talking about the coaching carousel, to switch over to the player carousel, namely the transfer portal, um, everybody's favorite new hot term in NCAA ease. Uh, basically, where are you transferring? Uh, and I, you know, I obviously the biggest story when it comes to transfers, John, is quarterbacks. Um, because people see just the power of, of a quarterback really being able to flip a team. Um, you know, when they go from a situation where they're just undervalued and underplayed uh, to a place where they can really burst out. We've seen it with recent Heisman winners breaking through. We just finished seeing it with the college football playoff national championship as former Ohio State Buckeye Joe Burrow took LSU to the national championship. Um, and he even had to go through Oklahoma's transfer quarterback from Alabama, Jalen Hurts, to get to that national championship game. So, obviously, quarterbacks are always the biggest story. And we've seen a couple of really big stories since we last talked. Um, I think the biggest one I've seen, at least in the past couple days, is Derek King who we talked about last week during our national championship podcast um, after he announced during the game that he would be putting his name into the transfer portal and leaving the University of Houston. I got to ask, what do you think about the decision he made to go to Miami, though? You know, it's interesting. Also, Zach, too, before I get into that, the last three 
you know, Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks are all transfers. So that's how quickly, you know, your fortunes can reverse if you get a guy like that. De'Ara King is a hell of a football player. We've seen it at Houston. He's not just dominating other competition in the American Athletic Conference, but lighting up big Power 5 opponents several times. I'm pretty surprised, though, that he landed in Miami, to be honest. And, you know, a young 22-year-old kid choosing to live in Miami isn't shocking in and of itself. But in terms of what his options had to be out there, and we don't know specifically what schools were willing to offer him scholarships and stuff, but I imagine the list wasn't short based on his ability. And just obviously there's opportunity at Miami because there was certainly not a quarterback in that room last year that stood out. But just with their kind of dearth of offensive talent, the struggles they had at the position the last couple of years, I was surprised that that's where he ended up. Instead of maybe looking at a school like an LSU, like an Oregon, somewhere like that where he could jump in and not just maybe compete for a division title, but a school that he could come in and potentially compete for a national title at. Because I don't think Miami's at a point that they're going to be competing for a national title even by adding Derek King. I think that's a huge addition if he can kind of break their struggles, their quarterback curse they've had in recent seasons then I think the Hurricanes have a really good shot at winning the Coastal Division next year. But this still doesn't put them, I don't think, anywhere close to being on Clemson's level in the ACC. No, not at all. And that's really the, you know, that's what perplexed me most about the decision is, as you said, we really don't know what all the options were on the table for him. But there were obviously teams out there with far more complete rosters that needed a quarterback. And so, as you said, if a school like Oregon or a school like LSU wasn't calling him, what the hell were they doing? (laughs) Because to have Miami end up being the place that ultimately grabs him, you've got to think one of two things, um, and maybe both of these things simultaneously, really, if you're Derek King. First of all, you've got to think that defense just needed a playmaker on the other side of the ball to give them some run support, if you will. You know, some some support on the scoreboard so that they weren't just completely swarmed and having to break out the turnover chain every few minutes to keep Miami in a game. And then, you know, secondly, he's got to think getting away from Dan Enos is just going to completely wash away the stink that clung to that offense last year. And maybe he's right. Maybe, you know, getting rid of the unimaginative, just lackluster um, system that was in place will be enough to, to break things open for them. But... That's an awful lot of ifs to be playing with as you're trying to, uh, to, you know, maximize your value in your final years of playing and, you know, make a name for yourself for NFL teams as well. It's a real big risk, but at the same time, if you're able to break things open for a team like Miami, there's few fan bases that will come out of the woodwork and support you like a Miami fan base. So if he makes them the hottest game in town, more power to him. Obviously, you know, he saw Tate Martell kind of 
you know, withered away after he transferred there last year. And uh, so he's got to have a lot of confidence that things are turning around with that coaching staff. Otherwise, he really risks having that same fate befall him. Right. I think he's probably intrigued about the prospect of actually playing with an actual defense. Yeah. For once, after the years he spent at Houston having to worry about if we don't score 50, then we're probably not winning this game. So that'll be a, a nice change of pace. So good for him in that department. But I, I was surprised. Miami wouldn't have been the place that I would have pegged him for. No, definitely not. And then, you know, we have other quarterbacks that, you know, that have cycled through. We have um, one I think that's really interesting that's still on the table is Chase Bryce, the, the backup for Clemson's uh, past couple seasons after Kelly Bryant decided to to bolt dodge uh so seeing him go somewhere else and be available immediately for a team is could be a really interesting uh prospect for one of those national championship contenders that's still looking to fill that position uh where do you think might be a good fit for him honestly that's interesting because bryce is kind of an unknown commodity they're really only tape we really have on him in a big situation was when he really showed his his moxie, if you will, last, or the 2018 season. I guess I can't say last season anymore because this season is now last season, but the 2018 season when he came off the bench um, and led Clemson over Syracuse when Trevor Lawrence got knocked out with that concussion. So there's still a few spots on the board, uh, a few teams. I just don't know. I, I can't imagine a team like LSU or Oregon is going to go after uh, a guy like Chase Bryce. So I imagine, you know, there could be a group of five program out there that might have a have an opening for him. Uh, even a spot like Houston, for instance, losing Derek King could be, you know, in the market for, for bringing in a transfer quarterback like that. I think – that would be where I would look if I was him, was maybe to try to go down uh, to a group of five team that's got a, a, an opening that could lead to, you know, maybe some early success. Maybe he follows um, his offensive coordinator, Jeff Scott, down to Tampa and goes to South Florida. I think that would be a pretty immediate, easy fit for him and a good transition, having already known Scott's offense. So if I had to make a prediction – I would probably go with South Florida just based on the trail of, you know, that's where his offense coordinator ended up. Yeah, I think that could be a really logical fit for him. Um, and, and that's the thing is I think a lot of the places where he might have ended up in a Power 5 situation, those doors are quickly closing. Um, the other question is, does uh, – does Mike Leach want somebody like a Chase Bryce? He might be somebody who could go after him and really turn him into a, a quickly known commodity. But it really comes down to what Leach wants to do with that team in this this first year. Um, but yeah, I mean, you go down the list and, you know, Jake Bentley is already at Utah and uh, Joey Yellen went to Pitt and... Uh, Especially, you know, Jamie Newman went to Georgia, which is, you know, going to be another interesting story to keep your eye on throughout the season. And, uh, you know, Cade Fortin went from from North Carolina to, to South Florida, but 
I think even then, you know, I, I, I think Jeff Scott would be all too happy to get Chase Bryce still, even though they have gone after other quarterbacks in the transfer portal. But yeah, I mean, that door is quickly closing. And so um, I think you're absolutely right that the group of five might be the place where he ends up. But I think if there was any power five situation where he would have an immediate chance to to compete for a starting job and have a huge impact, it would be Mississippi State. Yeah, it's certainly fascinating. Why don't you brought up Jamie Newman, too, because that's not really a guy we've talked about. That could be a really massive transfer. Do you think Newman is a good enough quarterback to finally kind of, I guess, fix Georgia's offensive issues they had last season, potentially get the Bulldogs a national championship in 2020? You know, I'm I'm hesitant to say so. Uh, you know, I think he was a good quarterback. I think he gives them just as much as, as Jake Fromm did. I, I don't think he's a worse quarterback than Fromm was. But at the same time, I don't think he's so, like, astronomically better that he elevates that team to another level. It, and I think that's really what it comes down to is – that's a re you know there was also talk about him going out to Oregon and you know you looked at the the situation there and was he appreciably better than a, a than Justin Herbert was I I don't really think so in that situation either um, really what I'm kind of you know what I'm kind of seeing this play out as is Washington's situation where Jacob Eason took over this year and he was, you know, we had the question, is he really that much of a step up? And he was, you know, he was supposed to be a more consistent performer at the quarterback position, but really you got the same, same returns that you got prior to him, his arrival there and his, his gaining eligibility. So I think Newman, you know, it could be a, be careful what you wish for situation because I think he can give you exactly what Jake Fromm did, but I don't think you're going to get much more than that. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to have more talent surrounding him at Georgia, but also the competition will be a step up from jumping from the ACC into the SEC. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he handles that. I, you know, I don't know if I really trust Kirby Smart's track with quarterbacks after you know, what happened with keeping from losing Eason and Justin Fields. I'm guessing if he'd go back and do it again, he'd probably choose getting two good years out of Fields over the one year, one extra year he got out of Jake Fromm. Yeah. Uh, particularly watching what Fields did at Ohio State. There's also a couple other ones I wanted to mention, Zach, some really strange ones. The main one was Florida's Felipe Franks ending up at Arkansas. I thought yeah. that was pretty, pretty odd. He decided to stay in the SEC and go – to the Razorbacks, you know, as big of a dumpster fire as Arkansas has been the last couple of seasons. You know, they've got a new head coach, but a guy that's very unproven, Sam Pittman, who is the offensive line coach at Georgia. That was a really good win for him to be able to get Franks. You know, this is a two-year starter in the SEC, a guy who's, you know, showed improvement the two years um, he was with Dan Mullen. So I – What's interesting, though, is, you know, Mullen has the proven track record of developing quarterbacks. We don't know anything about Sam Pittman's ability to to develop a quarterback. So 
it would have felt to me like Franks would have had other options, even maybe Mississippi State. He might have yeah. been a really good fit in the air raid offense for Mike Leach. So what do you think about Franks heading to Fayetteville? I, it, it makes you wonder how much, uh, how many Brinks trucks the uh, boosters backed up to his door, really. <laughs> um, because give it, I mean, and that's no knock on Fayetteville, everybody. Uh, lovely enough town, but given the situation with that program where it's at, a really odd decision on his part. I I think, you know, like you said, I I, I think we're going to continue bringing up Mississippi State as, as a place where these quarterbacks could have had more rapid success, and maybe they're just worried about what that... I'd say maybe they're just worried about what it looks like in a transition to a Mike Leach offense, but... He went to Arkansas. Obviously, the concern isn't whether or not the program is established yet. So, yeah, I, I, I think all around, I don't know what Franks was thinking about that. It'll be... I, I was wondering, the one question I was really wondering, does Arkansas play Florida this year? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that off the top of my head. Because that's the, like, if, if you're choosing between different potential SEC West schools or whatever, I think that would probably be the one reason he would choose Arkansas is just getting a chance to play his old team and sort of they, stick it to him. They do not. So who the hell knows then? Like, that's the only logical reason I could try to find in my mind as to why he would. Um, but we keep talking about the Mississippi State position as well. And I think one name that I've continued hearing come up is K.J. Costello from Stanford. And I could see him, him being a really good quarterback in Leach's offense as well. So... I don't know if that's why other players just haven't been courted is because they're giving Costello the full court press or what. But I'm guessing that's probably the logic behind that is Leach has his Pac-12 guy he wants to bring out and um, they really haven't been pursuing these other quarterbacks because of it. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if Franks just didn't have a lot of offers as a grad transfer because it's kind of interesting. He was really good at Florida the last couple seasons we saw him, but the two schools that I saw him linked most to were Arkansas and Kansas going and playing for less miles. So those are two, you know, lowly Power 5 schools. Power 5 schools nonetheless, but I would have thought that the market would have been a little hotter for him. Yeah, that is really suspicious as to why he didn't get more consideration from other teams but at the same time maybe it's the same situation we see with Derek King going to Miami is in the end maybe perhaps these these powerhouses the ones that think that they're they're in national contention are just planning to stay in house maybe they're really confident with who they've recruited maybe they're just ready to develop a quarterback the next couple of years. I mean, we know Oklahoma that's been sort of the the king of the transfer quarterback the past few years is staying in house with Spencer Rattler next year. 
So it, it, it could just be one of those years where nobody is seeing somebody that's so absolutely transcendent that it, it trumps what they already have on the roster. But, you know, at the same time, some of these quarterbacks we're bringing up, you think they could give immediate boost. And the schools that they went to, they can obviously give an immediate boost. But maybe those schools where we thought that they might just didn't have that same thought. And take take it, take it this for what you will about the state of the Arkansas program, but I would have gone to Kansas over them if I was Felipe Frank. Honestly, yeah, I, I'm sorry, Arkansas. I really am. Uh, it's not even just that bad of the thing about Arkansas. It's just how do they dig out of the cellar of the SEC West next year? They're not going to beat Alabama. They're not going to finish above LSU or Auburn or probably Texas A&M. So they're fighting with the Mississippi schools, both of which seem to be in better shape than them next season. So, I mean, you're pretty much condemned to a sixth or seventh place finish in the SEC West next year, and you've only got a year to play. Like, I, to me, you know, I would look at somewhere else. And Kansas, you know, is Kansas. They've been at the bottom of the Big 12 for a while, but they showed some tangible signs of progress last season. They were in several really close games that could have flipped. I mean, it wouldn't be a shock if the Jayhawks got to a bowl game next year. No, and as we mentioned when we were talking about coaching staffs and Dave Aranda going to Baylor, it's it's an open conference next year, you know. We don't know what's going to be happening at Oklahoma. Obviously, Baylor's in transition. Texas is perpetually a, pre-se- yeah. a preseason title contender and a midseason afterthought. Uh, you know, Kansas State is on the up and up under Chris Clayman, but at the same time, you know, Iowa State, maybe, maybe not. We're, we're continually thinking they're ready to turn the corner, but they haven't yet. Um, TCU is always a wild card, but, you, you know, under Gary Patterson, that's always... They're always going to play a spoiler, but it's it's been a few years since they genuinely looked like a contender. So you've got to think they had a chance to even go 500 in Big 12 play, you know, or or since they play a nine game round robin schedule, at least four and five. So I I, I I'm with you. I think that would have at least been a more fun situation for his final year getting to play with the Mad Hatter and and that group of guys in Lawrence but you know we're not the ones making those final decisions and you know maybe he just wanted to stay stay and continue playing SEC football maybe he thinks the the cachet of the SEC gives him a better chance of you know making his name for scouts and playing against an SEC West schedule and really you know getting that baptism by fire in a division that's even harder than the one he's been playing in the past couple of years so whatever the reason is I don't know that it was the right one but it it was damn well his so yeah and I think would be remiss if we didn't mention something we talked about many times on this podcast when it comes to transfers. It's not always about football. It's not always about sports. It could have been something as simple as Arkansas offered the course of study he was more interested in and Kansas didn't, or other programs didn't. So it could even have come down to something like that. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, it, it's absolutely true. And thank you for bringing that up because it, it, it certainly does come down to fit. Uh, you know, I know when I was looking at programs for grad school, it comes down to the fit with your advisors, the, you know, the, the program that you're going to be working with. And just like picking out the right coaching staff, that's your coaching staff for your academic department. So you want to be with people you really want to work with. And I, I, I don't even know what Frank studied for his undergrad. I don't know what he's going for for his graduate degree, but it, it, it's another thing to consider is that it could have been as simple as that. Well, on that note, let's take one more quick break, everybody. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk about the rest of the players in the transfer portal who do not pass the football. So we'll be right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back for the last segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We've been talking about the transfer portal. Last segment, we went all in on quarterbacks and talking about some of the big moves and some of the big names still on the board. So let's let's talk a bit about the other uh, positions that are there on the board, John. Um, you know, we've seen especially running backs like Lorenzo Lengard make the transition from Miami to Florida. I think that's obviously been the biggest talent, especially seeing a five-star recruit make that move up, up the Sunshine State to go to Gainesville. Um, What do you think that he could do for the Gators this year? You know, he was one of the top-ranked running back recruits a couple years ago, a guy that really, it seemed like, would come right into Miami and make an instant impact, kind of got buried on the depth chart behind, you know, Travis Homer and DJ Dallas uh, with the Hurricanes. But I really thought this year would be his breakout year. And, you know, he's been kind of a disappointment so far. Obviously, his talent is still great enough that he could virtually not put up much statistics at Miami and still attract a program like Florida. So he goes really a step up considering where the Gators are and considering where the Hurricanes are. So it'll be interesting to see if he can live up to all the promise that he had coming out of high school, if Dan Mullen and those guys can you know, pull that out of him. And, you know, sometimes a change of scenery is all a guy needs. Um, with as bad as Miami's offensive line has been the last couple of years, it could be just as simply that has been the reason he hasn't made as much of an impact on the field. So the Gators are certainly better in that department. So he's definitely, that's definitely one of the more interesting names for sure. When I think especially with LaMichael Pirine playing his last game for the Gators in the bowl, Seeing what P. Ryan was able to do behind that line was really impressive. And I think for Lingard, it does open up a lot of possibilities, as you mentioned. And um, I've got to ask, do you think it makes Florida uh, a real contender to finally get past Georgia next year and take over the SEC East? Yeah, I don't know if just the addition of Lingard does that, but I'm really intrigued with Kyle Trask having another offseason to get comfortable in that system, the added talent there. The Gators have been knocking on the doorstep for a couple of years right behind Georgia. You know, they've gone to consecutive New Year's Six Bowls and won consecutive New Year's Six Bowls under Mullen, which is all well and good, but he's got to get over that Bulldogs hump eventually in Gainesville. And with it kind of being 
what could be a transition year for Georgia, depending on what Jamie Newman's able to bring. You know, I do think the Gators have a really good shot. It wouldn't surprise me if, you know, they're the preseason favorite in the East. I'm guessing Georgia still will be, but I think they're probably neck and neck. Yeah, definitely. Uh the other thing I've really been interested with with Florida is they're also looking at Penn State transfer Justin Shorter, the wide receiver who put his name into the transfer portal. Um, he was seen visiting Gainesville. He's another former five-star recruit that could, you know, um, he had his ups and downs here in Happy Valley, but I think at the same time, he's another one of those huge talents that Dan Mullen could really shape into a key performer for the Gators. So if you start picking up more players like that, I think the snowball could quickly avalanche its way down the mountain for them. No, absolutely. And Shorter's a, a very unique talent, a big receiver, less than 6'4", 226 pounds. So I think that would be a really big addition. Florida's obviously, you know, had a ton of talent at the skill positions in recent years, and getting another guy like that who can play the outside would be huge. Absolutely. One more I want one more receiver I wanted to talk about, especially with CD Lamb going on to uh test the waters of the NFL. Um, how do you think Theo Howard is going to do as he transitions from UCLA to Oklahoma? You know, that that's fascinating just because certainly more opportunities are going to be available for him at Oklahoma with the fact that, you know, they're a pass-happy scheme. Chip Kelly's always been more interested in running the football. So this is a guy who, you know, hasn't put up massive statistics with the Bruins. He had 677 yards last season, but he's a guy who I think has the potential to really make an impact. And I think that's really good for Oklahoma because they have a lot of talented receivers that were underneath Lamb last year, but they're all really young. You know, you got a, a lot of the guys who were, you know, freshmen and stuff last season that made an impact, but having a veteran presence come in there like Theo Howard, I think is huge, if nothing else, than to be able to, you know, kind of guide those young receivers and help them in their development. Yeah. I, I think that he's one of those those players that could, you know, we talked about it with quarterbacks and having an instant switch flip when you go into a new offensive scheme. I think Howard is that exact same way. Once he starts, starts in with Riley's offense and is able to start playing with Rattler and getting more comfortable in, in you know, his knowledge of the playbook, he could really just explode next season. So he's going to be a fun one to watch for sure. Shifting to the offensive line, um, you know, we've seen a couple of big names move around, uh, several of which become immediately available. Um, you have Terrence Davis moving from Maryland to Wake Forest. You've got, uh, you know, um, Scott Lashley moving from Alabama to Mississippi State. Um, but I think the biggest name that's out there uh, that made a move was Cade Mays going from Georgia to Tennessee. And, you know, he's somebody who, he, you know, he's still in appeal right now to try to get immediate eligibility. Um, but how do you think that shifts the balance of power just in the SEC East as, we, you know, we look at the, the especially how critical – both sides of the ball are in the trenches for teams in the SEC. 
One of the that's one of the stranger transfers <laughs> I've ever seen too, because you got a guy who was a Kate Mays isn't transferring from Georgia because of lack of playing time. Kate Mays was a starter on Georgia's offensive line last season, and he's going from Georgia to a rival SEC East school. Like how how many times has that happened where a starter has left one program and gone to any program, more or less a rival program like that? I know he's from Tennessee. Probably grew up a Tennessee fan, but that's one of the stranger transfers I've ever seen. That's a massive loss for Georgia uh, as well because they're already they were already going to have to replace three starters on the offensive line next season. Now they have to replace a fourth, bring in a new quarterback, albeit a veteran quarterback in Jamie Newman off the transfer market, but having to come in with four new starters up front. And for Tennessee, when you start looking at the fact that they brought Trey Smith back. Um, who flirted with going pro early. He decided to come back. Uh, Brandon Kennedy got a six-year of eligibility, I believe. Their starting center, who was an Alabama transfer. That's kind of chance to be a really dominant offensive line for the Vols next season, which could be a really huge development in the SEC East. I consider Tennessee, you know, the a dark horse team last year looked stupid early in the year, but they finished really strong. You know, they ended up winning eight games. They're a team that really could make a move next year. And a big part of that's the fact that they're going to have a veteran, big dominant group of offensive linemen who will be able to protect their quarterback, open up holes in the running game and really play the style of football that I think Jeremy Pruitt really wants to play in Knoxville. Yeah. I, I, I think if there's any team that's, going to surprise next year it could very well be the Vols especially with um as you mentioned the uncertainty in Athens around a lot of different positions on that offense and um still the ongoing question marks at Florida because as much as we've been talking about them as as the biggest contender they're also bringing in a crop of players that could or could not all mesh together well with Kyle Trask and and the crew that's already there so it's all going to come down to fit and how quickly players get integrated into the larger system so that's a great point I, I I think just kind of thinking about Tennessee more broadly and their potential is is well worth mentioning um let's shift over to defense now because i i I think there's also some interesting uh players that are moving through the portal on that side of the ball and too often we focus just on offense you know and the opportunity that skill players can just blow up on uh for a team in the transfer portal we're looking at let's look first at that the defensive front um i think you know we see a couple of defensive ends that are transferring from the sec over to pac-12 country you know charles moore is moving from auburn to oregon state uh you have antonio alfano who's moving from alabama to colorado and he's also in appeal right now to try to get immediate eligibility Um, But then, you know, you have other, you know, you also have players from playoff teams this year, like Michael Thompson, the the defensive tackle from Oklahoma, Xavier Kelly's looking to leave Clemson. Uh, 
Ellison Jordan at Penn State is looking uh, for a new school. Um, there's a couple of really big game, you know, names still on the board there that could make an instant impact for a team. And I'm just wondering, who do you think is is the biggest name that's still out there that could could flip fortunes for a front four? Well, the biggest name that was out there that I had ready for this that's no longer out there as of the recording of this podcast was Quincy Roche, the defensive end from Temple, who um, on Monday decided to take his talents to South Beach and join Miami, which was a massive coup. Um, for Manny Diaz and the and the Hurricanes, he continues to just torture Temple fans um, after being their head coach for all of two weeks and now stealing their best defensive player. This is a guy who was the American Athletic Conference Defensive Player of the Year in 2019. He had 13 sacks. He's got 26 career sacks. So that's just a monster acquisition, I think, for the Canes. Um, he joins uh, a, a really good defensive front already so the fact that they're bringing him in um adding him with several guys who you know are going to set the tone for that defense it's been a good offseason so far for for Manny Diaz and the Canes being able to bring in an impact player like Roche on defense and an impact player like De'Aaron King on offense so it's been very fascinating to watch what's going on in Coral Gables it's been transfer portal U so far yeah, it really has. Um, they obviously needed to do something to shake things up down there. And, you know, part of that was on the coaching staff, but part of that is bulking up the talent that's there. Obviously for, you know, how they were ranked in recruiting in recent years, those players just haven't panned out in a way that they've needed them to. And so they've been really good at being aggressive on uh, in the transfer portal uh, to plug up some of those holes. And so let's, you know, I, I don't know if we want to just go, you know, push the chips all in on, on the hurricanes next year in the coastal. But I think at the same time, uh, they're going to be a contender if, if players get up to speed. And you know King integrates well, and um, some some of the talent on both sides of the ball picks things up quickly. Absolutely, they're they've certainly made some really big moves that should put them you know in in serious contention next season, at least in their division. Certainly, and you know we keep coming back to the SEC East race as well but i think another really interesting flip was Brenton Cox the outside linebacker going from Georgia to Florida you know we're talking about these flips of players within that division uh we just mentioned it um you know several times earlier and i think this is another one that sort of skews that balance of power within the division um do you, what do you do you think Cox can can make an immediate impact on that Gators defense? Yeah, I mean, this is a five-star recruit. Um, so he's he's a guy who's got all the talent in the world to go out and Florida's going to have, you know, a need um, at, you know, rush linebacker, essentially a guy who can get after the quarterback. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a big move. That was a huge coup for Dan Mullen. Yeah, I, I'm really uh, 
interested to see how that all plays out. And I think that's... Before I go any further with players, and, you know, I I think the biggest thing that, that really clicks for me with the transfer portal is, one, players can find their right situation in a situation where they're set up to succeed. Coaches obviously do that all the time. That's why we celebrate when a coach leads a group of five program to go to a power five school. Um, Urban Meyer wouldn't be as well known as he is now if he had stayed at Utah after leading them to the Fiesta Bowl. Let's just accept that. He never would have played for a national championship if he had stayed at Utah. Um, you know, even after they tra- you know, they moved up to the Pac-12, we've seen Kyle Whittingham had incredible success as well with the Utes and stayed with the team as they transitioned upward. And we know Kyle Whittingham, but he's not a, a, a three-time national championship winning coach. Right. And... You know, we we celebrate when coaches find the right situation to put themselves in a position to succeed and become all-time legends. And that's what players are doing more and more now as well. Um, You know, I think back, one of my favorite transfers ever, obviously, was Russell Wilson going from NC State to Wisconsin for his final season and leading the Badgers to the Rose Bowl. And... That's why we talk about quarterbacks, especially as much as we do, because somebody like a Wilson was the final piece of the puzzle for an otherwise really good, you know, Wisconsin offense. A Badgers team that's always built really thick in the trenches, always has somebody that can churn out a thousand or more yards, usually several backs that could churn out a thousand or more yards and just needed that final piece to provide real balance in a way that so many of the game managers that they get into Madison can't. Uh, And Russell Wilson completely transformed that team, and he put himself in a situation to succeed. I don't think if he stays at NC State, you know, he'll probably end up getting drafted, but he's not getting drafted in the third round especially with his size. He's probably not ending up in a place where he was, he's was he been able to, to succeed so far in the NFL like he has at Seattle. He's probably out of the league by now. You know, we talk about all these wacky counterfactuals, but the transfer portal allows players to put themselves in posi- into positions to succeed. And, you know, it can have real repercussions on the balance of power in a division as we're seeing in the SEC East this year. And it can allow a team to quickly flip its fortunes back in its favor in a wide-open division, like it very well might with Miami. And, you know, that can be really great for fan bases. It can be really dejecting when you lose a player. You know, I just watched Brendan Schooler, who's always been... a duck I really admired watching on the field, you know, a guy who could play both sides of the ball and he's going to play to Arizona now, you know, and he's not in the same division, but he's in the same conference. He's going to be immediately eligible. We'll see him next year. Um, And that's, it's always rough to see that happen as a fan when you're on the other side of it. But the fact is, 
Um, in the end, I celebrate player autonomy more than I do whatever an individual circumstance like this might do to my individual team, good or bad. Yeah, and, you know, even selfishly, when it comes to the transfer portal, it honestly makes the college football offseason that much more interesting because it kind of does feel like free agency in a way. And so many coaches have used that in a negative that's not a negative to me at all. It's awesome to be able to look at this, look at the chess pieces on the board, see these guys moving from school to school, and seeing the guys who are going to make these huge impacts and getting the opportunity to shine in different situations than they are. And, you know, we're seeing even big-time star players make the move. A guy like De'Aaron King making this move to transfer. I mean, that's as big of a name as we've seen, other than, you know, Jalen Hurts, obviously, moving from Oklahoma to Alabama, but Hurt or Alabama to Oklahoma, but Hurts had to leave if he wanted to play. Derek King would have been Houston starter next year. He didn't have to leave the Cougars to find another school. So I, I think it's fascinating because, you know, we get this topic to talk about. We get to talk about essentially college football free agency in a way with all these guys particularly getting immediate eligibility. And every kid in the transfer portal should be able to play next year. Not all of them are going to be able to, and that's unfair. And we've talked about that at length. But I like the fact that so many players, that all the players are really getting the opportunity to take their destiny, if you will, in their own hands and be able to, you know, have that power to make these moves. Definitely. That, I, I, we're obviously in lockstep on that regard, and especially on the fact that there's no logical reason to force a player to give up a year of eligibility to make such a move. I, I transferred three times in school. That's fine, you know, and I'm at a fourth school now that I'm in a grad program, which is also totally fine. That enriches the educational experience in a way that staying at the same place for five, six years for your advanced degrees does not. You get stuck in an insular world within your academic environment. And if we're, if we're talking about the NCAA celebrating, getting people ready to go pro in something other than sports, set them up as well as you can to succeed and it sh damn well shouldn't just be grad students who are doing it. Because I transferred several times as an undergrad. I wouldn't be the student I am right now if I hadn't. So, uh, yeah, in that regard, we're, we're, we're in lockstep, as I said. One last question I got to ask you. This is a bit tongue-in-cheek, John. Do you see any kickers out there on the transfer portal that you think Alabama might like next year? <laughs> it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter who it was. We could bring in the freaking reincarnation of Lou Groza, and he'd come out there and shank 28-yard field goals in Brian Denny next year. So it's pointless and means nothing. All my hope is in Will Reichard, though. He's not a transfer. He was a freshman kicker for Alabama last year who got hurt. I think the kid's going to be legit, but I hesitate to even say that out loud because I've been hurt so many times. I, I had to do it. I had to do it. <laughs> Janik, Sebastian Janikowski got any kids? You want to send them my way? Yeah, exactly. We're, we're, have the Grammatica brothers had any... Uh... 
had any youth. That is a name that I have not heard in many years. I know, right? Uh, well, on that note, do you have any other nuggets of wisdom you want to throw out to the listeners out there this week, John? Uh, you know, again, with the with the transfers, don't, I guess, I, I see too many fans who have such awful things to say about these kids who are choosing to make these decisions, the decisions that these kids think are the best for their lives. Don't be that fan. Don't be that fan who watches a player from your team leave to go to another school. Don't get on Twitter or any social media and call him a quitter or something like that because it's not true. That's not what they're doing. They're looking out and doing what's best for them just just, just as much as anyone out there would do what's best for them in the same situation if need be. It's not quitting to leave a school to go somewhere else. And like I've said a thousand times, like Zach's repeated, it's not always just about sports. Sometimes you go to a school and that school sucks in comparison to what you were thinking. It has nothing to do with the sports you're playing. It's just not a good cultural fit for who you are and who you are becoming in that stage. You change so much between 18 and 22 years old. By the time you're done with your freshman year in college, you're a different person than you were as a senior in high school. You never know day-to-day how that's going to go. So I just, I hate it. I hate seeing people attack these young kids who take their, you know, abilities to a different school because they feel like that's what's best for them. And again, it ain't always about sports. Sometimes it's all about feeling comfortable in the school you're going to. And it doesn't matter when or how or why that happens. Exactly. You don't pick your undergrad necessarily because of the the programs it offers or the major you're planning to go for. I know I certainly didn't know what major I was even going for when I first went to school. When I came back to school, I sure as hell knew what I wanted and and still had an issue picking accordingly because of the options that were immediately available to me. And for these kids, you know, they choose a, a, a program to go play college football at. And like pretty much every other 18-year-old, they don't know what they want to be studying Oftentimes you get funneled into a certain course of study at a school because it fits in with your practice schedule and everything else. And once you've decided what you want to do for the grad program, you become more discerning. That's part of what going through school and getting educated is about, is being smarter with your choices. And if you want to do that with your grad program, please do. And yeah, I've got to reiterate just what John said before we sign off. Don't go on Twitter and blast at the player. Don't call into your favorite radio show and make an ass of yourself. Because that's all it's going to do is it will make an ass of you talking about that nine, you know, that 21, 22-year-old who's going and seeking a different opportunity. It's not going to reflect poorly on them that you're talking poorly about them. It's only going to reflect poorly on you. And certainly don't send any threats their way, death threats, threats of hunting them down at their house, threats against their family members. Just don't do it. There's Sports are fun. Sports are fun. Rivalries are great. But ultimately, you only see these kids for three to five years anyway. 
and you were not, you know, they were going to be vanished into the ether, into the, the recesses of your memory soon enough anyway. And if they play out that final year at another school, you still got two, three awesome years with them. Bask in that. And I'll, yeah. Yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're feeling the urge to go on the internet and spew hate towards someone for that reason, two words of advice for you, log off. Yeah. You know, just log off. Go take a walk. Go punch yourself in the face. Do literally anything else. Sound advice. On that note, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And as we continue on into our long off season that now officially begins, uh, we'll be here with you every Wednesday to talk more college football. For John Mitchell, I'm Zach Bagalki. Thanks for tuning into the Saturday Blitz podcast. <laughs>